I'll stand by you. I'll stand by you. I got a new rug. <gasps> Where? I'll show it to you. It's upstairs. You <laughs> <laughs> look so I'll show it to oh, you. Jesus. Well, it's a really small area rug that we just needed something at the top of the stairs. And already it's caused so much grief. Uh, you know, I put it up there. And Why? It's, well, it's got that look that's like, I'm pretending to be old, but I'm not. That charming look. It's like a half little fady. Yeah, I go for that. Uh, I fall for that. And it was... Same, uh, I love it. This kind of has that vibe, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. I love this rug in here. Me too. I should have maybe just gotten the same thing. Well, I, this one is teal. It's upstairs. And um, the color's a little more aggressive than I thought it was going to be. I, I'm fine with it, to be clear. I'm just down on it because Koa, like, tripped on it right away and took, like, a face plant. And then Matt was, like, acting really angry. And I was like, what's going on with you? Do you hate this rug? Because he was like seemed really angry after we put it up there like it it, it oh changed God, the rug him. that's haunted is that what you're it's truly driving crazy yes <laughs> mine is about a rug it's about my rug specifically and i said to matt what, what's with you what's like with the rug and he said something like oh it's just the color every time i look at it i just think oh really who are you kidding to the <laughs> rug kidding what does that mean what does that mean like he is he going through something he must be (laughs) i mean i gotta get rid of this rug (laughs) (laughs) this rug is causing i mean what are you trying to be i mean what what is it he's gonna fight the rug is it a circular rug i'll show it to you it's a it's a fucking rectangle did you need a rug there it's a rhombus no i don't know Quinn, at what stage of pregnancy are you? Exhausted? Everyone, you hate everyone. I hate everyone. (laughs) And when I went to the midwives today, they made some remark about, and we'll do this test at 40 weeks or 41. And I was like, how dare you say that to me? (laughs) I am not going to be pregnant at 41 weeks. I also just have a swirling whirlwind of anxiety. Oh, my God. Everything that happened this week was such garbage. Um, And then I went to go look at the news. And I'm just trying to look at the news in that, like, passive way where you're like, I want to hear about that they found, like, a surprisingly large squid. Or that, like, (laughs) I don't know. They were like, by the way, new study says... If you're pregnant and you get COVID, you're going to die. Like, something that aggressive. Oh, I saw that. And I was just like, that's so rude. Because I feel like all I've read is, like, you're fine. You're going to be fine. And then it was just like, by the way, if you get COVID, you're dead. And I was like, get (laughs) out of here. Like, fuck you, phone. Go fuck yourself. Fuck you, new rug. Didn't, wasn't it, is it, like, pregnant women have higher hospitalizations? I, or something no, like it's literally said. I'm trying to lessen you're gonna it. You're going to die. Fucking like, egg, Quinn. That's dark. Yeah, tell me about it. <sighs> so it's been, um, I don't know. I think I'm just also, I'm really ready for this person to have some personhood. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think right now you've been giving the baby life 
for eight, nine months and two weeks. Haven't heard a thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) I haven't heard one thank you. Everyone's like, she's not going to do this mom thing well. Guys, come on. She's done it once before. How hard can it be? How hard can it? It's so hard. You know what I did bring today, though? Mm -hmm. I brought huge Tupperwares of frozen veggie chili. I don't know how good it is, Quinn. That's fine. I tried. There's a ton of veggies in it. I'm going to have it it after the baby comes, so I'll probably be drunk most of the time. Thank God. If I blind tested you would you know what color pepper you were eating i would know a green bell pepper but in terms of like that says that too and he fucking failed when i made him do blind <gasps> i'm gonna go get some peppers when you come next and i'm gonna fucking but test you know what you. i did instead of green i did a poblano because i thought that would give it some more spice in the chili also you could do a little fresh onion in it that's always good but i like a greek yogurt or a sour cream in my chili do you like that yeah. I, like I think that. you got to dress it up. Like Add cheese and it'll, it'll taste better. I like cheese on everything. <laughs> I'm laughing because today Ko was eating his boogers and I was like, you got to stop doing that, man. And he was like, but why? And I was like, no, it's just a thing. Like, we don't eat our boogers. Uh, if you get a booger, you got to tell me and we got to put it on a Kleenex. And he's just like looking at me, <laughs> continuing to eat his boogers. And I'm like, why do you do that? And he's like, I don't know. And I was like, what do they taste like? <laughs> he goes weird cheese (laughs) 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 and I was like oh that's the funniest thing I've ever heard you know what that's so funny though just hearing you say it I don't know man we just don't do it why don't we eat our boogers because we just don't do it man we don't do it I'm not saying we should I think I ate boogers well into my youth really I mean, that was not a nasty habit I had. I want to be very clear, dear readers, I no longer do that. I do have a friend that does it openly. Really? As an adult? <sighs> it's so gross. I can't be around him. <laughs> I like, I gotta go. I can't. No. No more. No mas. No, 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 no. He Please. deserves nothing. No friends. I... You know what? We're giving them a lot of thorns. We gotta find a rosebud here. Um, the... Oh, I've got one. Ooh. A really good one. Ooh. Guess what I did to my... All right, so I don't take baths. I'm not a bath taker, but in pregnancy, it turns out I am. I bought, like, a pretty canister, like a clear, large canister, filled it with Epsom salt and put it by the tub, set up some candles, and got a fucking bath pillow. And now I go in, I put some, uh, I choose uh, an essential oil. I... Throw some in, throw some Epsom salt in, lie down with a bath pillow in the tub, and I soak for like 20 minutes, and I'm really into it. Quinn, that sounds so lovely. And I've been doing that at the end of every day for like 20 minutes. There's a rule. I get to be alone. We start a timer when I go in for 20 minutes, and then after 20 minutes, Co is allowed to come in, and he gets in the bath with me. Oh. Um. He loves it, too, because the candles and stuff, so he can make, like, shadow puppets on the wall. <laughs> um, and he's really sweet because I told him, you sure you don't want to take a bath alone, man? Because, like, first of all... You're big. You're big and I'm big and what are we doing in here? Yeah. And I'm like, you can't splash if I'm in the bath with you. And if I get out, I can close the shower curtains and you can have, like, some splashing if you want. Yeah. And he's like, no, Mama, I don't want to splash. I, I want to be with you. And I'm like, all right, this time is precious. Let's fucking take this extremely uncomfortable bath together. 
That's really cute. Yeah. Does he pee in it? Does he pee? No. In fact, I was shocked. He, the first couple times we took one together, he got in the water and his eyes got big and he was like, Mama, I got to pee. And I lifted him out of the bath and he peed and in the potty and then got back in. And now when he comes in, he always goes, don't forget, I have to pee first. And then he pees and then gets in the tub with me after. He's getting so big. I know. I was like, that's the sign of like really growing up. He may eat his boogers, but he does not pee in the tub. That's really lovely. It's terrific. Oh my God. You're going to be a mom times two so soon. (sighs) I can't even believe it. I said no more thorns. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I really like that. Tell me a story. I'll tell you a story. By the way, you're listening to Truly. Darkly. Creepily. That's Quinlan Posner. Posner, And that's that's Carrie Ipema. (laughs) We're getting good at it. God, we're stars. We're a star is born. Double star. sha la la lo (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I got this information... From Wikipedia, Ozzy, O-Z-Y, Flamingo, View from the Wing and the Miami Herald. I'm doing the story of Eastern Airlines Flight 401. I've been on a plane kick, apparently. You love airplanes. I don't know why. You miss being on one. I miss being on one desperately. So Eastern Airlines Flight 401, it's going from JFK to Miami, a journey it takes frequently. On December 20th, 1972, it leaves at 920 in the evening. The plane was a Lockheed L-1011-1 TriStar. So... For all you aviation oh, well. fans, <laughs> shout out 1011. <laughs> no, this is the latest model of a commercial airplane. So it's fucking big jumbo jet 72. Bam. It's in service for four months. So she's a new guy. So flight was supposed to be around three and a half hours. There are 163 passengers on the plane and 13 crew members. So it's a pretty normal flight, no problem. The captain is Robert A. Loft. He's 55 years old, and he has 30 years of experience as a pilot. So he's well-versed. Don Repo is the flight engineer on crew. This guy, um, Angelo Donadeo, he's a technical specialist. However, he was, quote, was it, is it dead? No. Um, quote, dead. He was, quote, dead. No, there's a phrase called <laughs> deadheading on planes where people take, I think it's specifically for pilots, But this guy worked for the airplane. He was just a passenger. He wasn't actually an active member on the crew, but he was sitting up in the cockpit with the crew. This guy, Angelo. Seems illegal. Fine. Well, he worked for the airlines. He was a technical specialist. And he's like, can I sit up here with you guys? Well, don't you remember planes were different? Like, you didn't have to go through security. You used to be able to go up in the cockpit and be like, hey, and they'd give you wings up there. Yeah. You could, like, sit in front. You'd be like, do you want to fly for a second? Yeah. And you'd be like, sure. And you'd fly. Maybe help land the plane. I don't think I ever got to do that as a kid. We drove a lot of places, but <laughs> sounds like a dream. <laughs> it was great. Um, so a couple other people on the flight just that I read that were there. This woman, Beverly Raposa, she's a stewardess. She's 25 years old. She's pretty young. She's five foot, one inch and a half. And the reason why that's important is because she wanted to work at Trans Work Airlines, but they turned her down because they have a five foot two minimum. So she felt huh. self-conscious about that, so she would wear her hair a little higher. So she was, like, 5'2". 
Young stewardess, high pony. I got it. Yeah, and it's the 70s, so let's be honest, like, only women could be stewardesses because it was a sexist world. Still is. Back then, my, how the tables have not turned at all. (laughs) Stayed the same. Um, Ron and Farah Infantino. So the thing about Ron and Farah is sometimes she's listed as Lily, but I'm going to call her Farah. Ron and Farah Infantino, and they were both 26. They are newlyweds of 20 days. So they just got married. Congratulations, Congratulations guys. to the two of them. They're coming back awesome. from their honeymoon. And, you know, a little before the plane lands, they switch seats. They're relaxed. Like, it's a, you know, it's late. It's 11. They're flying. So three hours in, all of the people on the flight recall the announcement saying, Welcome to sunny Miami. The temperature is in the low 70s, and it's a beautiful night out there. So everything is totally hunky-dory, normal. People are nice. They got their drinks. They got their peanuts. They got their snacks. At 11.32, Captain Robert Loft, Bob Loft, gets permission for landing, obviously, from Miami Airport, and he tries to lower his landing gear to test it out, right, to leave. But the light doesn't work. So it's like he has to pull it back up to check. Two minutes later, he calls the air traffic control people and he's like, hey, listen, Tower, this is Eastern 401. It looks like we're going to have to circle. We don't have a light in our nose gear yet. So his thought was that I think it's just that the light is out. The landing gear probably is going, but we should just check it to make sure. Obviously, that's what you want your captain to do. And for the record, you can still land if the landing gear in the front is up. It's a little bit more of a difficult landing, but the you know he's just crossing his T's and dotting his eyes. So they give him permission to go up to a 2,000-foot altitude. So he brings the plane back up there, and he puts it on autopilot so they can fix this light. Now, the light is like one of those, the way they described it, it's one of those like green bulb lights, you know? And so they have to take the whole mechanism out. Don Repo goes down into the aviation bay and is like checking the landing gear. He's doing that. And so they're making circles 2,000 feet above the Florida Everglades. It's swampland all throughout Florida, right by Miami. The captain orders first, pi- first officer to turn the autopilot on. They're on the autopilot at 2,000 feet up in the air and they're all struggling kind of to get this light bulb out. They're working through it, they're working through it, and something happened where someone knocked the autopilot off mm-hmm. and no one noticed. No one noticed? No one noticed. Because the plane just stays stable enough that you're not like... Yeah, nothing, nothing. It, it, so, and I guess what happened was, is I guess someone nudged a throttle. Basically, something was happening in the adjustment where the autopilot was turned up and the um, controls like put the nose of the plane down to a very slight degree. So it was so they're slowly, dropping altitude super fucking slowly. Super slowly. And so they're talking, they're loud. This Jesus. piece of equipment that they're trying to solve costs $12 to fix the light. The landing gear seems works. seems like that's probably the issue. Yeah. <laughs> Don't go to Home Depot <laughs> to replace that. Like. Right? So they're like, the landing gear works. It's just this light, and we're fixing it, so we just want to make sure that it keeps going, but it keeps jamming. So when the sound is happening where it's like a warning altitude, they're talking. They don't notice it. What? They have no idea what's going on. Guys, get your act together. So the altimeter, which is the altitude meter, altimeter, um, is slowly decreasing in altitude, but no one knows notices. Now keep in mind, at 11.32, this is when he first tried to lower the landing gear. It is 11.42 p.m. 
while this is happening, the air traffic controller is seeing the decrease in altitude and is trying to get in contact, but they're worried about this light. And, like, I guess no one's communicating. Are you kidding no me? They're worried about this light and they're not fucking focused on attention. anything else? Jesus. So it's 11.42, 10 minutes after, <sighs> the first officer is heard saying, we did something to the altitude, thinking that by changing something, they adjusted the altitude lower. The captain says, what? The first officer says, we're still at 2,000, right? He's looking at the altimeter, and he's seeing it's fucked up. We're still at 2,000, right? And then the captain shouts, hey, what's happening here? And then you hear the sound of the crash. (gasps) They had no idea. It happened that fast? It happened within 10 minutes of them trying Even off to, trying to fix this light it was a five it was five minutes Are you like it was fucking five, it was ten me. minutes they and tried they to first lower this plane the plane crashes in the everglades oh my god so Raposa, the 25 year old stewardess she is out there and they're ready for landing so everybody's buckled in but she said the fucking passengers thought well, I'll get to it. Raposa, the stewardess, she senses a shift and she's like, something's not right. Something's not right. But again, this is happening so fast. I mean, realistically, I guess 10 minutes is a long time, certainly. But like, when no one's communicating. You're like, what's going on? We're supposed to land like nothing. They think they're just landing, blah, blah, blah. Ron, who was, I think, in Vietnam or he was in the war, he hears the engines turn off. And so he wakes up and he says... This is going to be one hell of a rough landing. That's what he thinks before the crash. The plane crashes at 227 miles per hour right into the mud of the Everglade. The wing is tipped, so the plane spins. It is 185 tons crashed into the Everglades. A fireball immediately erupts from the crash because of all of the excess fuel. There are 43,000 tons of aviation gas spilled in the Everglades from this crash. Before I get into the crash, I just want to say there are people around this area that see this happen. See it? Mm-hmm. No shit. There's this guy. Can you imagine? No. There's this guy, especially considering what I, he was doing. His name was Richard L. Marquis, um, and he was out on his airboat with his friend, Ray Dickinson, and they are gigging frogs. Do you know what gigging frogs is? No, I don't know what gigging it's like frogs. Small is. spear fishing for little wildlife. They're just like hmm. out in the Everglades, gigging shooting frogs. the shit out of frogs. Okay. So they see the fireball and they immediately go into the crash site and start helping. They immediately. Whoa! What cool guys! Really cool guys. Not only that is when first responders started coming. And keep in mind, this is in the middle of the Everglades. This is a huge part. This is like. It's a huge area of Florida, so it's hard to navigate there. So they, on their airboat, they're taking doctors and paramedics to the sites, and and they're helping those who are injured. They're putting some of them on their boat and bringing them back and forth and back and forth. Marquis, that guy, he ended up having burns on his arms and face and legs because of the spilled jet fuel. Mm. Because he helped shuttle people back and forth to and from the site. He ended up, spoiler alert, but it's worth saying, he received the Humanitarian Award from the National Air Disaster Alliance Foundation and the Alumatech Airboat Hero Award. 
from the very American, sought after. very sought after, very desired, no monetary prize, but bragging rights from the American Airboat Search and Rescue Association. So he was showing up. Also nearby was Officer Gray Leonard, who was 24, who worked for the Florida Game and Freshwater Fish Commission. So he was just like out what they said he was looking for that night was poachers, drug smugglers, and bodies full of bullets. <laughs> That's how they list him. It's Florida. It's a wild <laughs> place. He's 25, 25 miles away. He sees the huge crash, and he goes right on the scene. Here's what happened. The mud absorbs the front, the cockpit, some of that impact, although all but one of the people in the cockpit die a bunch of passengers die specifically from the middle of the plane because of the way that the impact hit and it split. So the best place to be was the back? Was the back. It was like either the front of the passenger or the back. So when Officer Gray Leonard, the patrol guy, arrives on the scene, he first sees a woman lying face up in the mud, clearly dead, and a guy lying naked next to her face down He had only on a necktie, and his belt was pushed up to his armpits. People were projected so quickly that they were naked. Their clothes, like, ripped off. It's, yes, it is wild. There is reports of the plane landing, and it looked like something shot out the front, like something went through the front of the nose of the plane, And when they went 50 yards away, they saw it was through a willow tree, and it was a naked man in a fetal position. Oh, my God. The sheer velocity, like, pushed someone out. Horrifying. Horrifying. So there are survivors, including our stewardess Raposa, the 25-year-old. So she comes to... It was all because she was five, five, one one and a half. I know. Um, All right. Tell me why. She's still strapped into her seat. So she comes to and is like, what's going on? She's like dangling in her seat. She comes to and she sees what's happening. She sees the wreckage. She unbuckles herself. She's injured. She gets into like survival mode. Her face has some burns from the jet fuel, but she starts screaming for no one to light matches. She's afraid because there's no light that people are going to light their matches, and they were right by jet fuel. So she starts screaming. Her face is burned from the jet fuel, so she goes down into the Everglades, and she picks up some of the mud, and she rubs it on her face to calm down some of the burn. She starts yelling to anyone who will hear her, I'm a stewardess, follow my voice, come here, come here. Mm -hmm. So she ends up getting all these people by her, the survivors, and she's walking them through these exercises. Like, everyone, imagine you're holding a hot cup of water, of tea. Now sip it and feel how warm it is. She's, like, doing some, like, yogic meditation shit. Whoa. And then also because nobody was there, again, they're in the middle of nowhere, so they have to wait for the first responders to come. She wanted to keep people's spirits high. So she starts singing Christmas carols. While she was with the survivors, some of them were like, oh my god, are there alligators? I mean, they're in the fucking Everglades. There's, And she's like, don't worry, they don't eat people. She's like, making shit up, keeping people fucking calm, singing Christmas carols. At 3.15 in the morning, rescuers are coming. Like, this is how long it takes for people to get their shit together and come out here. Mm -hmm. Um, Including, and I thought this was interesting, was retired Air Force Colonel Frank Bowman, who was a former astronaut 
He was vice president of that airline and is a first responder on the scene. Oh, quel coincidence. I love that, actually. I'm like, yeah, I think the people in charge should be on the fucking scene right away helping out. Ron Infantino, who we know was one of the newlyweds, was married, was 26, was married 20 days prior. He wakes up and he's buried up to his neck in water and mud. He's completely naked except for the elastic rims of his socks. Jesus Christ. So he's in the mud. What an outfit. The outfit, but also the mud saved these people. Yeah, yeah. He was super injured, but he felt no pain. Like he was stuck in a seated position, right? And his arm was three quarters severed and his left knee was dislocated at a really fucking severe angle. He ended up surviving because one, like, the mud weirdly stopped people from bleeding out, you know? Like, it, ca- like caked. It, it caked. However, there were so many microorganisms. The amount of gangrene that everybody got the infections from this Eef. was insane. All right. If you're wondering about his wife, Farah, Farah Lily, she did not survive the crash. Very sad. Ron, he had gangrene. His wife died in the crash. And so he needed lung therapy. So after the crash, he needed to go to a respiratory therapist. And there he met a woman whose husband had died 18 months prior. And the two of them ended up falling in love and getting married and having kids together. And they've been together for 18 years. I don't know if we needed that, but if you need a little rosebud, let's go with a thorn. So the people who died, the pilots and flight engineers, the only person who survived that was in the cockpit was that Angelo Donadeo, and he was the one that wasn't working, that he was just sitting there. He was a passenger on the plane, but he survived. He broke his back, but he survived. Captain Bob Loft, he ended up survived the initial crash, and when a first responder got to him, he looked at him, and he was like, I'm going to die. And the guy's like, no, you're not, and he died shortly after. Don Repo, that guy died. Um, he died in the hospital. So two out of the ten flight attendants died. Ninety-six out of the 163 passengers died. So in total, there was 101 fatalities 98 of which were in the Everglades, and three of them were in the hospital. Mm. So that's how some of them were right on the scene, and three were in the hospital. barely anybody made it to the hospital, huh? Yeah, I mean, they were super far out. Yeah, makes sense. So that believes 75 passengers and crew survived. So after this happened, the story obviously spreads. It's a really, it was the biggest liner at the time to have crash. And then came some hauntings. People saw the ghosts of some of the captains on their flight, including mm. Bob Loft and Don Repo. On one flight, Bob Loft was seen and then disappeared by three members of the flight crew on that flight. Whoa. On another flight, they saw Don Repo in the cockpit where he said that there'll never be another crash of an L-1011, like a little ominous, but that wasn't true. I guess there was a crash of that plane. <laughs> He, so I being guess a not ghost all, you're not doesn't make you a soothsayer. It does not. An entire crew of one of the flights saw Repo sitting among them on another flight. Mm. And they claimed that he told them about a faulty electrical circuit on the plane, which was found and repaired before flight. Repo was also seen in the um, aviation bay. Remember where he was fixing the landing gear? He mm-hmm. was seen... He was seen there. He was also seen in a reflection of an oven door in the cabin. I feel like if this is 
like if you died that way and you the guilt of your mistake killing all those people that would be what i would do as a ghost i'd come back and be like oh you're gonna want to replace this part like <laughs> like just save just other people and, yeah and just be helpful just come back but and be helpful that's it, it feels like it does feel like don it feels like bob loft is the guy he's the captain it feels like you know Repo was down in the fucking bay trying to see that they were landing. I, okay. I can't say that's his fault. Loft, this was so creepy. Stewardess was, like, going in the overhead bins, and apparently she saw Captain Bob Loft. That's <laughs> just a prank. <laughs> also, I would do Staring that if I was a ghost. I'd be He's like, I'm going to hide. That's like baby games <laughs> prank. That's so bizarre. I really like that though. That there's like hello. I picture him like this. Hey. <laughs> like a Bob Selleck porn star vibe. Yeah. Ugh, I love that. In 1973, on a flight from Newark to Miami, so not JFK, but Newark to Miami, there was a a passenger who was deadheading, is what they call it. Like I mentioned earlier, which is like a pilot who comes mm. on the plane, and can fly that's a perk of being a pilot is lit my cousin's one you can f- you can go on any you just flight. jump on you planes. fucking jump on planes whenever you want i guess it's called deadheading so the captain Don't went to go the name <laughs> well i like it for this reason but the captain went to go check on it and as he got there he because he wasn't listed on the manifest and they were like just double checking because things were a little bit loosey-goosey in the 70s in mm-hmm. the airplanes and he walks back and he goes my god it's bob loft he thought the ghost was, like, deadheading on his flight from Newark to Miami, which is a similar trajectory of JFK, <laughs> which I, I love that. So at this point, Eastern Airlines has to really nip this in the bud because they're like, this is not good publicity. Like, we have a plane crash. We don't need more stories of ghosts of that fucking plane crash no. on our flights. So they threaten to fire anyone who shares ghost stories. Oh. <laughs> it feels like, okay. But then it came out that parts of the crash site were taken from the crash site and put on other planes like they salvaged some parts of the f- of the plane and it came to light that one of the planes that put it on was 318 which is where a lot of these sightings occurred Ooh, that does make it seem double creeps like it's true right and so this is where they talk about psychometry. It's when spirits have a relationship to inanimate objects. Mm. And it would make sense that these pilots and engineers who are there would be haunting the space or the the place, you know. Yeah. I can't think. So The place where their death is associated with. That's what I wanted to say, but I thought you said it better. So let's keep that. <laughs> um <laughs> So what happened to some of the other evidence? An original floorboard from Flight 401 remains in the archives at the History Museum in Miami. But do you know where some more pieces of um, Flight 401's wreckage can be found? No. Think about it. Where, who would want some pieces of this wreckage? Of course, Ed and Lorraine Warren. Oh, my God. Why didn't I see it? Of it's course. because you're tired and you're really fucking pregnant. <sighs> tired but and cranky. some of pieces, some pieces of Flight 401 in Monroe, Connecticut, at um, Ed and Lorraine Warren's Occult Museum. When the pandemic is over, we should go to Connecticut and go to their museum. No, I'm too scared. <gasps> okay, fair. Anyway, that's a story of Flight 401. I hope you weren't listening to it when you were on a plane. <laughs> oh, my God. But I liked it because it took such a turn where it's like, yeah, it's a crazy plane crash. But then it becomes a ghost story. Yeah, that was great. 
What a turn. What a turn for the better. What a true dark and creepy story. Quit patting yourself on the back. You know what? I'm gonna. I did. I, I feel like, listen, the last three stories I've told, I think, have all been plain stories. So I think I gotta chill it. I think I gotta calm it down. That was it. I'm gonna tell the story of Leslie Newlander. Okay. Um, I read Syracuse.com, New York Times, CBS, and I also watched a really terrific Dateline episode called Return to Shalimar Way. Ooh. I'm going to talk about couple Bob and Leslie Newlander. They live outside Syracuse, New York. Okay. They're a family with two kids. They're super rich. They live on Shalimar Way, but they're doing well. Like, he's a OBGYN that delivers babies. They have a house in the Caribbean. Oh, wow. They're super charitable. Okay. You know, okay. that sure, sure, kind sure. of vibe. Everyone loves Leslie. She's like public persona kind of... She's like a little socialite vibe. Yeah, but she's really friendly and like down to earth too. Okay. You kind of want to hate her, but she's great. Yeah. She was a nurse and then she became a stay-at-home nurse. All right, I take it back. We love her. She has kids of her own and then Bob had kids of his own and then they got married. Brady Bunch Um, style. Yeah. She also has like a thick Long Island accent and she's like (gasps) no nonsense. Ugh. Yeah, like we love her. We stand her a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Um, their friend, Mary, takes some sort of fall, something, some illness hits her when she's in Croatia and she falls and like goes into a coma and she's not doing well. But then when they bring her home, she recovers. And this is just interesting. This is anecdotal, but very interesting way to start this story. Leslie and Bob are friends of Mary's and Mary's husband and they go visit Mary when she gets home and they're like the first visitor she has like when she comes out of the hospital or something and Leslie's like whoa it's really crazy that one second you're fine and then you fall and all this shit happened to you and Mary just brings it up in interviews because it's fucking ominous that Leslie says that and you're about to see why a few days after Leslie says this to Mary We're dealing with 2012, September 17th. It's like 8.30 in the morning, and Dr. Bob Newlander comes home from a jog to their house and sees Leslie on the floor of the bathroom shower and yells to their 23-year-old daughter, Jenna, call the police. Your mom's hurt. And so she does, and she's screaming into the phone, that there's blood that her, and she's just like mommy mommy and no. the there's a police officer that's in the neighborhood at the time Tom Norton and he gets the call and heads over he says that um the call was somebody fell down in the shower right and he's like that actually is <laughs> more common than you think that someone's yeah. unconscious and everyone's freaked out um so he's like whatever and he goes over and there's EMTs already there when he gets there And he walks into this kind of mansion and follows the noise of the chaos. And he can hear Jenna screaming, Mommy. And a paramedic comes out and is talking to Dr. Bob and is like, we're going to stop CPR. She's (gasps) gone. No. And Norton's like, whoa, that doesn't usually happen. He goes into the bedroom and there's blood everywhere um which like it's a head wound so that would 
be the case. There's blood in the bedroom. There's blood in the bathroom. And then he kind of looks at the doctor again and he's like, oh, weird. That guy's kind of familiar. Oh, I think he delivered my wife's baby or his office did. Like everyone kind of knows Dr. Bob. Then he sees the body. Leslie's hair's all matted with blood. She has like a swollen black eye and they've declared her dead on the spot. Oh, God. So her friends, the friend she just visited, Mary, and her other friend, get ready for it, Terry. Oh, Terry I belong and Mary. in that friend group. I know. They're like, we can't believe this. Like, we cannot believe right. that we just lost Leslie. It's just super surprising to the whole community. I mean, it's so, so sudden, right? Like right. someone falling in the shower. Uh, the sergeant, Sergeant Norton stays for a minute and waits for everyone to leave the bedroom and he's like I don't feel good about this and I don't know why and he calls the captain and he's like I think you need to come check this out I'm so like hard for a police officer who like does their job in a way that's like not sad is that like that like it's someone who's like yeah this something does seem off here and let's like call it his like followed his blink and also like didn't wasn't an asshole to anyone just like fucking did his job kept his head down yeah he's just looking around and he's kind of like whoa this this husband like when we came in she was in the bedroom and it's like 50 feet from the shower like i go to these people fell in the shower things all the time the body's always, well, the body, it's usually they don't die, but they're always in the shower still. Okay. Or in the bathroom still. He's like, I don't know. It's just weird. Eh. So county medical examiner comes and looks at the head injury, which is fucking enormous. And the Emmy says, the medical examiner says, the black eyes from when she fell it's common that that would happen. It's not like, right. calm down about it. And he says, this is all looks like a slip and fall to me. We're going to rule it that. And because they rule it the slip and fall, it's time to pack up and leave. This is not a crime scene. Right. So it's time to go. So they go. Terry gets called. Mm-hmm. Remember, Terry and Mary. Terry's yeah. one of the pals. She gets called, comes over to the house. And, you know, Jenna's in a state and is sort of of like, can you please go clean up the blood? Because I can't, like, deal. Yeah. And so Terry goes into the bedroom with the maid, uh, the housekeeper, and they're cleaning. And they're kind of cleaning up the room and both in shock themselves. But they sort of start having this side conversation that's like, it's a lot of blood. Wow, it's so much blood. It's and it's like really deep in the rug and it's it's over here and it's it's over here. And Terry's like, "Yeah, um this is just weird. I'm getting like weird feelings." Um and the story of this fall makes its way through the c- community and everybody rallies around the family and Bob is kind of being quiet and keeping to himself and just wanting space. Uh, and again, Terry knows that the community's rallied around them and it's been ruled this accident, but they're, she's also having the feeling that I think something the else officer had, it just doesn't feel right. And it's hard for her 
to put a finger on it, but it's also she doesn't want to talk about it because no one else. That's a very sensitive thing to say. Right. And everyone else, no one else is talking about it like that. Right. They're like, it was a freak accident. But she also loves her friend Leslie and is like, I need to find the middle ground of like not running around and gossiping about this, but also getting her justice not getting not feeling shut down and afraid to think it might not be what I'm seeing. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go see a medium. Well, that I mean, I probably would. I I probably would maybe call the police on the scene and be like, I'm getting a fee. Maybe I wouldn't have closed the case. So that's a big call to make, I think, to be like, I know you guys already ruled it. Do you want to chat with me about what I think? I went to the same house you did, and here's what I think, and I'm a citizen. If I think she didn't right. feel like she had a right at this point. Okay. So she goes and sees a medium, and she doesn't say much to the medium. She says, I'm here to talk about a friend. And the medium right away is like, oh, you're here to talk about this friend, and starts describing what Leslie looks like. And then says, oh, your friend was struck in the head. Okay. Um, Which is like just a strange way to put it, right? If she fell. Yeah. She is able to describe the bedroom, like the home, what it looks like in the room that it happened. None of that's been in the media, pictures of the room or anything. Oh, wow. So... She is weirded out by what the medium says, and she goes to her priest next, and she's like, Feels this like a happened. weird order to be like, hey, priest, listen, I spoke to the, the medium. medium. I know it's not chill. I know you're not, like, super, <laughs> it's not super kosh. Yeah, so she goes to the priest and is like, my medium says, and he says the same thing you do. Do you maybe want to talk to the police? Right. Like, if you have these feelings, maybe that's who you should go to. And she's like, I don't know. They closed the case. Okay, I know who I'm going to call. We have a mutual friend, Leslie and I, Mary. And Mary was in book club with me, so I kind of know her. I'm going to call Mary. She calls Mary because Mary also is a medical examiner. What? Yeah, that's her job. So not only... Did she have a coma in Croatia? She's a medical examiner? What a life. What can Mary not do? <laughs> right? She calls Mary and she's like, hey, I know this is weird, but here's all the... I had like a weird conversation with their housekeeper. We both were weirded out by the scene for all these reasons. And Mary's really nice and listening to her and wanting to hear her out and very like a good person to call, I think. But she's also pretty skeptical that it's anything more she's also coming from a position of being like i know how hard this is to accept that one little thing happens like a fall and it can shut your world down it can kill you but i of all people have just experienced something so similar that i understand that it's hard to accept it but that it's very real mary kind of gives her the same advice and says This is too informal, you just, like, deciding to talk to me or this priest or whoever. You really, you'll feel better. You'll feel closure if you bring what you think you have to the police. Because then it's just this feeling of you've done your due diligence as a friend, which is what you're trying to do. You're trying to be a good friend to Leslie. That's such a good point. Terry, one thing you should know about her, she also worked in the medical profession. She was a nurse 
And not only was she a nurse, but she was a nurse that for a time worked for Bob Newlander at his OBGYN practice. So she has seen him in action, as it were. She has seen him running around, dealing with crazy stuff, reacting to uh, emergency situations. And she would describe him, she said, as just super level-headed. He's a professional, obviously. He's good at what he does. Um, So one of the things that keeps bothering her is that he moved the body. Because she's like, everybody knows you don't move a body. People that don't have medical training know that if you find someone hurt like that, you don't move their body. Yeah. And if he, well, so that that is sticking with her. Right. She still doesn't call the cops, but then coincidentally <laughs> runs into a cop. It feels like the ghost of Leslie is like, keep going. I'm going to send you a medium. I'm going to send you a priest. I'm going to send you another medical examiner who all tell you the <clears> same <throat> thing. Now I'm going to send you the fucking cop so you can finally talk about my death. Yeah. So when she runs into this cop, she just kind of starts asking him questions mm-hmm. about the death. And just by the way she's asking, he says to her, do you want to come in? Like, I kind of think you should come in and talk about this. She's so nervous because the community, again, is um, kind of tight-knit, and she doesn't want to even be, like, seen going into the cops. Of course. Reputation is everything. Well, yeah, especially in a small town outside of Syracuse. But this guy's like, just so you know, I don't think, I don't even know if he tells her this, but he's like, there have been whispers. Like, this would not be the first whisper. We actually, and they got an anonymous letter (gasps) that said that the Newlander's personal life wasn't what it seemed to be and that they were in money trouble and urged cops, like, you should keep digging. You should not close this. Oh, wow. And they had taken statements from Bob and Jenna, who were obviously the only two witnesses. Bob got an attorney right away. That's not crazy that he got an attorney. That's what you do. Terry knew about the finances, too, and she brings it up. She brings it up in a way where she's like, well, I worked there. And one of the big, like Blue Cross Blue Shield or something, one of the big health insurance companies dropped Bob's practice. Because they dropped Bob's practice, a bunch of people that had that insurance could no longer go there. So they lost like a huge chunk of their patients. Mm -hmm. And he was going to do some, he had to like lay people off and stuff. But his business wasn't booming by any means. So she goes in and talks to the police a little about how she's feeling. Nothing really comes of it. Three months later, after Leslie's died, Bob calls her. He never calls her. It's weird. Yeah. But it's also weird his wife died. So he says he's calling. It's like the kind of thing where, you know, the women always are like the good ones at making. um, I'm sorry to gender that, but it's sort of true in a lot of relationships. Women are the ones that maintain Maintain the social social plans. Yes. And so I just think it was like, she's gone now. He's not talking to anyone. So he does call her and he's kind of like, hi, I'm just calling to catch up. Um, weird. Yeah, it is weird to her. And then he calls Mary and does the same thing. And Mary feels like his tone's weird. He tells Mary, I'm about to go visit Jenna in Israel because she's studying in Israel right now. Something about it makes Mary nervous because even though 
she again has been skeptical that it's anything more than meets the eye. When she hears he's leaving the country, something is triggered in her where she's yeah. like, what if she's friends with the DA? She calls him and is like, I feel weird. My other friend kind of told me all these things about the crime scene having a weird feeling, and I don't know what to do with that. And he's like, oh, well, um, why don't you take a look at the case? She's like, like, as a medical examiner. And she's like, hmm, that sounds super unethical. Okay. I'm in. I'm in. So he gives her the file. So she has now all the crime scene photos and the reports. And it's more than just a gash on her head. There's like a five inch wound on the side of her scalp. The injuries are on multiple sides of her face. The fall doesn't make sense to her as like a one impact fall. Right. There's also blood spatter in really weird places in the house. There's blood spatter in the bedroom on a wall and lamp and on their bedside. And so even if she fell in the shower and then he picked her body up and carried her into the bedroom and set her on the floor, would that make blood spatter everywhere? She concludes that Leslie was murdered from looking at these photos and she tells the DA. And the detective hears this and is like, shit. We fucked up. So what they do is they can, they hold a meeting. They invite um, a pathologist. They invite the original medical examiner that had said it's a fall. They look at everything together in one room, which feels great, right? That yeah. everyone's like, let's like let's go over this. Let's have a chat about it. And all, and the other pathologists are like, we agree with her. She's wow. not wrong. So the DA reaches out to Bob's lawyer. And they talk to Bob again, and he's like, here's what I did. I went for a run. I came back into the house. I got a cup of coffee, went upstairs, chatted with Jenna, went into the bedroom, set down the coffee for Leslie, heard the shower was running, knocked, no answer, finally went in, found her, moved her to the bedroom to do CPR, um, I moved her because it was really dark in the bathroom and it was like steamy. And the detective's like, hmm, I went in that bathroom. It has two skylights and like a huge window. It's hella bright. So that's not lying really great with me. Also, what husband knocks on the door if you're taking a shower? <laughs> a good husband. You know what okay. I mean? <laughs> <laughs> really, though, like, who just, like, I feel like you just, like, walk in. Um. Well, we'll get to that. But he also says he carried her into the bedroom, put her on the floor, and did CPR. And two of the paramedics are like, no, usually if someone's doing CPR, especially a doctor or especially somebody that it's their wife on the line, you would see injuries from like the bruising, CPR, yeah. bruising or cracked ribs. There's no evidence of any CPR being performed. We did CPR when we got there. So we know like what we, it, we, it appeared we were the first. Right. So Newlander and his attorney are like, fuck you. This is insane that you're suspecting me. The whole family backs him. But the news coverage is like, if you know anything, tell us. And so this guy comes forward named Nevin Roby that met Leslie at an Apple store 
um, he worked at an Apple store, and they met at the mall, and they became friends. I thought you were talking about, like, real goodness apples, like like Red Delicious. I was like, a whole oh, no, store no, no, for no. galas? No, an actual Mac. Okay, great. They became friends. <laughs> the way he describes it and the dateline, he's like, well, we're both Jewish. Well, so, friendship. Yeah. Sure. But they really became friends. They would have lunch at the mall, like, two or three times a week. And oh, wow. what was kind of cool about their friendship is that it started off really base level, but then because they weren't in each other's lives at all, like there was no overlap, it sort of became a little bit therapy-ish where they would share things with each other they might not share with their closer friends because there was no crossover. It felt really safe. Right. Um and in fact, no one had even told him that she had died. He found out because he didn't hear from her for a while and got a weird feeling and Googled her. Anyway, he does go to the police when they're on the news and he says, I just want to say, like, my impression was that the marriage was really unhappy. It sounds like he cheated on her a lot. And we would talk about that. And then he texted me. Bob Newlander did. And said, basically, what are you doing with my wife? And I was like, I'm friends with your wife and we're having lunch and talking. And he's like, okay, I'm really glad she has a friend she can talk to, but don't get involved. Like, don't get involved in our marriage. It's our business. And Leslie doesn't care. God love a paper trail. You know what I mean? God love a paper trail. Leslie doesn't care this happened. She still goes and meets up with him for lunch. And she's like, just so you know, me and my husband are splitting up. We've decided. We've already told the kids. I've already started looking for a new place. I put down a deposit. I'm moving on with my life and I'm happy. Terry knew about this and is like, yeah, yeah, she was leaving him. She was really happy. It was not like a secret. Okay. So that's why he might have knocked on the door, by the way. Okay. They're breaking up. So now they want to go back and look at the house again. Right. Bob sold the house. Like after this happened, as you do when, yeah. like, too sad. Um. But they call the new owners and are like, this is a little weird. Can we go into the house? And they're like, yeah, we we haven't done anything. We haven't. We bought it. It's as is right now. Yeah, it's been three months. But like it, it's as is where they go back in and there's still blood everywhere. Like they've cleaned up the blood, but there's still blood splatter and dried blood. They take carpet samples and record the spatter patterns, and they notice something they didn't notice before because there were pillows blocking the headboard the day they went in, (gasps) but they notice that there's a bunch of blood soaked into the headboard of the bed. Remember, he moved her from the shower to to the fucking floor of the bedroom. There's no way. No fucking way. There's blood spatter on the blinds behind the bed. It just makes no sense at all. Ugh. At this point, the original medical examiner has also changed his professional opinion to this is a homicide. Right. Um, So Bob, like, willingly goes in. Everyone's still standing by him throughout this. The family, including Leslie's family. Yeah. Where does Jenna stand in this? With her dad. Right. But she's calling her mommy. Yeah. Was that relationship solid? It's her mom, yeah. But so now they're going to have a hearing. Bob will, every time he goes into court, Bob Newlander will walk in like flanked by Leslie's family, the kids. Everyone's like, he didn't do this. Yeah. In court, one of the more damning things I thought they do is they play the 911 call Mm -hmm. because Jenna's the one that called 911. Yeah. And what you hear is she's calling from a landline on the other side of the house. And she's like, 
doesn't really know what's going on, but she's like, something's going on with my mom. Hang on. I have to go over there. And then you hear her yell, dad, put her down. Her neck might be broken. And then he puts her down on the floor in the bedroom before moving her again. And Jenna's like, daddy, don't move her. Daddy, stop moving her, please. So you're hearing, she knows you're not supposed to move a body. He's the fucking doctor. And he's moving her. Why is he moving her? It only makes sense to me that he's moving her because the crime was committed in the bedroom and there was blood everywhere. He put her in the shower to be like, she fell. (gasps) And now he's being like, I got to put her back to justify all this fucking blood. Do you understand? Yes. Also, on the call, you hear her really early on when she's running across the house and going to see what's going on. She says something like, oh, my God, there's blood everywhere. And she says it right away. And in court, they're like, it feels like what happened is she went into the bedroom and said, oh, my God, there's blood everywhere. Yeah. Then it's like, stop moving the body. Yeah. That would mean she saw the blood in the bedroom before the body was moved into the bedroom. Then a second after she says that, you hear her being like, mommy, mommy. That's the other thing. She has this huge reaction to my mom, my mom, my mommy. It's after saying there's there's blood blood everywhere. everywhere. So it does feel like first realization. There's blood everywhere and you're in the bedroom. Second realization, going toward the bathroom my mom, I see her now, and I'm reacting to seeing Did her. Did she see her mom in the bathroom first? I think so. That, to me, is more damning, is, like, if she walked in blood and then, like, I thought the, her mom's body was in the bedroom at this point. I think she sees... Her mom in the shower. Her mom in the shower, her dad move her mom. Okay. God damn it. When she has to testify... She totally covers for him. I don't know. I mean, I can't say covers, but I can say she's like. There's no way she's did it. saying whatever she needs to say. No, no, there was b- blood only after he moved her, and her testimony is huge because she really she's is close o- to her mom. Yeah, and she's the only person on the scene in the moments after. She's the only other eyewitness. Well, right, and then we have the housekeeper, right, that came in to clean, and the housekeeper will say. What I noticed right away is the sheets on the bed were not the sheets I had made the bed with. I think that the sheets were changed. Why would the sheets have been changed? Jenna will say, no, I went into my parents' room the night before and they had changed the sheets. It was those sheets. So we have the sheets are an issue. The blood spatter that I told you about on the bedside table, it's on a lamp. It's on water bottles. It's on stuff that was on the table. So the first thing you say is, How the fuck did it get there? But not just that. Remember, he said he brought her a cup of coffee. Yeah. There is a cup of fresh coffee on the, the no blood on it. So it feels like that was part of his kill her, leave, go on the run, come home, get coffee, act normal, bring it up. Like the coffee cup (sighs) feels like it was part of staging. you think he would have left to run? I don't know if he would leave his daughter there to find the body. Pretend to run? I don't know. Right. I don't actually I do think he left to run because I think he left to run to, to get give rid of an alibi vibe, an alibi vibe. Maybe I think to get rid of whatever he hit her with because they will never find an object that he hit her with. And I think he was getting rid of it on the run. OK. 
Again, everyone, the whole family's on his side. Leslie's sister tells the jury, Leslie had vertigo, used to get dizzy spells. She fell recently. People are saying, oh, well, there were paramedics at the scene. They're the ones that got the blood all the fuck all over the place. The spatter could be from them pulling off rubber gloves. The spatter could be from Bob says he was wearing a long sleeve shirt when he went to give her CPR. And he pulled it off to give her CPR. When he pulled it off, he was in the bedroom. Did he create a blood spatter? I don't know how blood spatter works. But I can't it seems imagine like the it's shirt like would have to be like vinyl so, or something. It'll just be like soaked in blood that it's like dripping. Yeah. And the DA's like, no way. This guy went on a run, got rid of the sheets, got rid of the weapon. Also, the, the injury comes up in court and they're like, this should have been a simple linear fracture. But it's a complex, depressed fracture, which I don't totally get. Where it's like, I, I guess this is, it feels like there's more force than falling on a floor. Yeah. And there's scrapes on her skin and bruising on her nose and on the other side of her cheek. It, do, it feels like she got <sighs> beat up. Also, if she slipped and fell in the shower and banged her head, wouldn't you also bang whatever else, like your elbows or something like your knees like when you fall when you go down like yeah. that it just feels like it wouldn't just she be like a black out i mean she'd It'd have be to like bruising completely... on the elbows or the something right and it's just all everything's concentrated to the head it's like she nosedived it's like it just was her head that hit that's okay it seems odd the jury will never hear from that guy nevin that she was friends with that they had the lunches mm-hmm But he had said that when Leslie and him were having lunch, she said to him, Bob's starting to get really weird lately. Like, his behavior's erratic. The other night I was in the bathroom and he came in and he was really aggressive towards me. Like, not physically, but like, just talking to her weird and heated Hmm. in a way that she was like, what's going on? And then he like left suddenly. So weird. Nevin's like, well, are you scared? She's like, no. But when he, he hears about this happened in the bathroom, it brings up this conversation for him right away. Right. The jury doesn't hear this. They deliberate. It ends on the third day. They find him guilty of murder in the second what? degree and tampering with evidence. Wow. That that surprises me. It's a huge surprise, especially to the family that is backing him. Jenna's crying out. It's this very dramatic courtroom scene. She's yelling, I know you're innocent. Then they have to have another court date for the sentencing. Right. And he talks about how I'm a doctor. It's my, you know, I took a vow. All I do is try to save lives. All I do is try to bring babies into the world. I would never cause a death. And the judge is like, in the jury's eyes, you intentionally murdered your wife and then attempted to use your own daughter to cover it up. Your daughter, who most clearly adores you, which is as diabolical as <gasps> it gets. And he gives him 20 to life. Whoa. After the trial, there's an alternate juror that comes forward and is like, I have concerns about juror number 12. I think she was getting media notifications on her phone. They're like, turn your phone over. She was. Not only that, but she talked to people about the case. Ugh, fuck. Like, after one of the first days, her dad wrote her, make sure he's guilty. Meaning, like, I think what that means is, don't send him, 
don't let this guy like hang for a crime he didn't commit. But it still it's it looks bad either way. Right. The district attorney is arguing like a lot of her texts actually show that she took her job really seriously because she people would ask her questions and she'd write, I'll tell you all about it soon. She also would say things like, I can't talk about this. She also said things like, we could send an innocent man to prison or put a murderer away. In reality, someone's life is in our hands. She's she's But she is writing about this case and she's getting text messages from people. So... God, I would love it if you and I were on the same jury. What a fun vibe that would be if it was like a sequester jury. We could talk about it all on the podcast. We'd be terrible jurors. Yeah. We'd keep no secrets. I would text you every day. If I, just let it be known. If I was <laughs> in a jury. you just tell them that to get out of I'd it. I'd be like, I have a friend, Quinn. We have a podcast. And I would tell her. And I would honestly, I, I would tell her everything. I know I'm not allowed to. I know to, it's but, against the rules, but I'd do it. And I'd have no regrets. <laughs> So the appeal goes to, like, the highest court, which agrees with the defense, and they're like, this guy needs a second trial. In 2018, he's released on a million dollars cash bail. He was scheduled for trial earlier this year. They canceled it because of COVID, and it's rescheduled for October 2021. So see you in a year when we find out what happens to Dr. Bob Newlander. Wow. Crazy, right? We think he did it, right? I think he did it. <laughs> Why are you smiling? I don't know. Because usually I I usually err in the opposite direction. Yeah. There's more to this story. Like, the thing that is so difficult is, like, he was a little aggressive to me. But, like, he, she's never talked about him hurting her. And to go from, the like, zero to 100 whole, is wild. Well, and it's weird that she has friends that are like, oh, he did it. And she has family. It's her family being like, he didn't do it. That part's hard to reconcile because... Totally. Um, I mean, with Jenna or somebody, it's a little easier because you go, I get it. It's you her lost dad. your mom. You're not going to lose your dad, too. The amount of heartbreak you've already had to go through is immense. I get it. But her sisters and stuff, or, you know, you're like, they're standing by him? I don't know. I tend to be on the side of all are innocent until proven guilty and really hold steadfast to that. Mm-hmm. But I don't feel like they answered the blood spatter stuff well enough for me to feel good about his innocence. Yeah, I guess at the end of the day, if I had to pick, yeah, I say guilty. I'm glad he's getting another trial, sort of, because if he's yeah, found I'm guilty interested. twice, that'll really feel... Enough's enough. The trial's going to be nine years after the fact. Always like that. That's always amazing, but it's always true. It's amazing how that works how out. Slow justice, how the wheels slow. of justice turn. And what is the, what is the in the Constitution, what we're required by law to have a speedy s- trial? A speedy trial. That's like what we're supposed to have in the Constitution. and Or two or three. <laughs> just depends how it goes. It just depends. It's yeah, just like, I just thought this was um no this thank was you. A crazy I love case. that because we can update it in a year. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully we'll know in a year what the deal is. Um, you know, I always feel bad because like I'm really susceptible to, generally speaking, to the documentary stuff done on this, to TV shows, to right. films, and obviously the show I watched this was like been felt. Like it favored his, his guilt, doing it, yeah. and 
that's be- probably because that's also um it's also like the only explanation the better story i mean maybe. we could listen next week we could do a whole thing where i argue the intruder <laughs> <laughs> okay it was not an intruder. intruder theory we just do that every case now are we ready to go yeah let's get out of here let's get out of here i think <laughs> after all this talk <laughs> of murder <gasps> We deserve a treat. Let's go have a treat. Let's have a treat. Okay, bye. Join Patreon. Bye.